This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. This episode is part of a long series about the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States through the life of William Jennings Bryan. It can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. The governor of the Bastille knew something was wrong. Change was in the air, and the place he worked, the Bastille prison, was a symbol of brutality and injustice during the monarchy. Family members could send each other there without trial, simply by obtaining a letter with the royal seal. Those who upset the French crown for any reason were banished inside its walls. Though by 1789, it wasn't as bad as it had been, it was still a powerful reminder. And people live and die by symbols. Oh yeah, and it was also a storehouse for gunpowder. The French people, upset with their government, stormed the ancient structure, no doubt in hopes of obtaining the gunpowder. 83 people died in battle, with more passing from injuries. The prison was a physical manifestation of the regime, so the people demanded a symbol of their own, taking the Bastille governor's head as their prize. France was in a perilous financial state. They'd played a major role in the American Revolution, costing a great deal of money. Remember, folks, we didn't do it alone. The French were there, too. And we got help from Spain, the Dutch, Mysore, an Islamic military state in India. That's right. Muslims helped us win by diverting the Brits' attention, Native Americans, and more. All of whom did not like the British. So the French were in the hole over the American Revolution. Then there was the excessive spending of Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette and their predecessor. If you've ever been to Versailles, you know exactly what I mean. Halls of mirrors, gold everywhere, rooms upon rooms, gigantic gardens and fountains, a private opera house and church. I'll tell you the part that struck me as the most extravagant when I visited a few years ago. Marie was fascinated by peasants. So what did she do? Walk among them, visit neighborhood farms? No. She built a sort of fake Disney-style village where she could pretend to be a peasant without actually having to interact with one. Not great optics. This is right about the time when she would have said her famous let-them-eat-cake line. She probably didn't say it, but it is a great quote nonetheless. Normal people, not those hired to play peasant with Marie Antoinette, but the real deal, were burdened by heavy taxes and plagued with meager harvests. Enough to make anyone angry. To boot, 98% of the French people were represented by one group in official business, the Third Estate. There were two other estates, the nobles and the clergy. Those two could override the will of the people easily, meaning that the clergy and nobility were way more powerful than the majority, which, you know, really steamed their snails. Yeah, they had representation, but the 2% with the connections easily drowned them out. 
Is there any wonder why the French Revolution was marked by anti-clerical and anti-noble sentiment? The people demanded an equal say. None of the negotiations really took. A short while later, the people removed the heads of both King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. This was the French Revolution. New governments came and went, wave after wave of leaders ruled only to be decapitated or, shall we say, cut short? This was an upheaval for the record books. Some viewed it as the sweep of modernity reaching Europe, delivering peasants from feudalism, the world getting better. Others, as a sign that things were changing very quickly, sliding into chaos, headed for destruction. And just maybe, it was a sign that the world itself was coming to an end. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. The French Revolution happened shifting power dynamics in Europe, rolling out a massive amount of change in short order. But there was something more. France restructured the clergy. In doing so, they excluded the Pope in the discussions. France had been a Catholic country. In just a few years, they decided to do away with Christianity entirely. Under Maximilian Robespierre, one of the many folks who claimed power, they established the Cult of Reason, converting old church buildings into new places of worship to this political god. He even built a shrine inside Notre Dame. In one particular point, they've come into Notre Dame to take part in the cult of the supreme being, if you will, and Maximilian Robespierre has this gigantic papier-mâché mountain that's been put in the middle of Notre Dame. This is Justin Butler, pastor at Highland Christian Church in Maysville, Kentucky, and a Napoleon scholar. This is from an interview I did with him in season two. And when this service, if you will, starts, Robespierre himself walks down the mountain dressed all in white. And that's when the people really began to see the negative side of Robespierre. And they began to say, you know what? I think he's wanting to be worshipped instead of instead of reason. That's not why people start to turn on Robespierre towards the end of it. But that definitely plays a part in it. People were like, yeah, this is not what he said it was going to be. And then, of course, they end up turning on Robespierre. So, yeah. You can imagine the Catholic Church was not thrilled with a cult in Notre Dame. 
Robespierre, by the way, lost his head in 1794. As the Bible says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Bigger still, on February 20th, 1798, the Pope was led out of Rome by the French, unseated from the Holy City. That may not seem important to the history of Christian fundamentalism. It really is. Some Protestants saw this as a sign of the end of the world. In Protestant circles at that time, the papacy was labeled as an oppressor or even an apostate church. You'll see as we go in the next few months that the 1800s were marked by anti-Catholic sentiment. One particular Protestant interpretation of scripture didn't help. Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 describe an oppressor who would wear the people out for a period of time, which some interpret as 1,260 years. It's complicated. Now, don't get hung up on the numbers. We won't spend a lot of time on them. The important thing is that if you saw this as referring to the Pope and the end of that power is a sign of the end times, then the Pope getting exiled was a really big deal. The end of that 1,260 years. With the Pope leaving Rome, the French Revolution sparked a renewed interest in the end times that would come to define the fundamentalist movement and shape the trajectory of American Christianity. If the end is near, what is it going to look like? Will it be peace on earth? Or total calamity? We should listen to Revelation chapter 20. I should say, kind of fitting with the theme of this episode, it also mentions beheading. It's not talking about the many leaders of France that we just covered. It's just a coincidence. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The thousand years there is often referred to in Christian circles as the millennium. But like so many things in the book of Revelation, there is a lot there that is unclear. We'll cover just the two major interpretations, premillennialism and postmillennialism. First, postmillennialism. I'm going to let George Marsden take this one. He's the author of Fundamentalism and American Culture. You'll hear a lot from him this season. The postmillennialists were optimistic about the progress of civilization, the progress of Christianity. They believed that as Christianity succeeded, uh, the last age in human history would be a, a sort of golden age, which is what they interpreted the Bible to mean by the millennium. And then after that, Jesus would return. So Jesus returns after the millennium. There is going to be a terrific thousand years, and then Christ will return. Essentially, the world is going to get better and better, and then Jesus comes back. Then there is the second idea of the thousand years, the dark view, pre-millennialism. And it teaches that the world, instead of getting better and better, is getting worse and worse, that it's turning away from Christianity, and that at the end of our current era, Jesus will return to set up a millennial kingdom, and then Jesus will personally reign for a literal thousand years. We've got a pre and a post. 
Jesus is coming back at some point. It's either before the thousand years when things get really bad, or after things get really good. Premillennialism has a generally negative view of history. Post has a generally positive one. Today, it's hard to imagine the darker version hasn't always been popular. If you're like me, you grew up reading the Left Behind books where Christians are snatched off the earth just before the world is plunged into judgment. But in the mid-1800s, post-millennialism was the popular idea, which is a paradigm shift for those of us who look at the past with our present-day eyes. Before the Civil War, most American evangelicals were post-millennialist. Jonathan Edwards, for instance, was a post-millennialist. As were George Whitfield and Charles Finney. William Jennings Bryan was also a post-millennialist. You'll see that played out in coming episodes. It's one of the reasons Brian doesn't quite fit into our picture of a fundamentalist and why he has a Forrest Gump kind of life, showing up at so many important moments in American history at the time. Because he believed that it was possible for Christians to make the world a better place. And one method of doing so was through the government. And they believed that the world was getting better and better and being Christianized at the 19th century saw the the rise of Christian missions and this hope evangelizing the world. And so it was a very optimistic outlook that postmillennialism says the world's going to get better and better and then and and the last era of human history will be a, a sort of golden age for the millennium. This view has things looking up. Premillennialism is the one that says that things are looking down. And they're going to get worse. That's not to say that premillennialists are always sad and posts are always happy. Many premillennialists look forward to the coming of Jesus because it will end a period of misery. It gives hope to the downturns of today because the future will eventually get better. Pre-Civil War, again, most evangelicals were post millennialist. We will make this world a better place. Which is why so many social movements started in that era. Temperance groups to end alcohol consumption, women's suffrage, foreign missions boards, the improvement of prisons, making it illegal to detain someone for debt. It didn't flip to premillennialism until the late 1800s and early 1900s. We'll talk about that change pretty soon. We're going to see how these different ideas played out across the 18 and 1900s and the life of William Jennings Bryan in a future episode. But first, how does this stuff impact us today? We are actually living in the third ecosystem on this earth. This is John MacArthur preaching on September 21st, 2008. MacArthur is a pre-millennialist, a super popular preacher in Southern California with a popular radio program called Grace to You. As a pre-millennialist, he sees world history as sliding into chaos. The first one was Eden. The second one was after the fall. The third one was after the flood. In this sermon, he breaks history into four eras each of which ends with a cataclysmic event, destroying the environment and creating a new one. 
earlier in his sermon, he comes to the defense of DDT, a chemical used to kill mosquitoes and other pests. It's also a known carcinogen in humans and is banned in the U.S. MacArthur goes to bat for it, saying that there is no money spent on actual science studying global warming. Apparently, he's also not concerned about the potential for cancer. He claims that, quote, In an effort for us as we confess our green sins to lower our carbon footprint, we're going to wind up watching 50 million people die because we will not increase energy, unquote. He asserts that, quote, God intended us to use this planet, to fill this planet for the benefit of man. Never was it intended to be a permanent planet. It is a disposable planet. Christians ought to know that. He's laying out the argument that, simply put, all of this is going to burn anyway. So why go on and on about saving the planet? But there is coming in the future another restored earth, a fourth ecosystem, and that is the ecosystem in which we reign with Christ, and at the end of which even that ecosystem will be destroyed and replaced by a new heaven and a new earth in which there is nothing but everlasting righteousness. I am not responsible for the earth, and I feel a lot better about knowing that. I'm not responsible for it other than to do everything I can within my power to extract out of it all that is good for which I can give God glory and help folks. MacArthur is not alone in this line of thinking. He's joined by the likes of creationist Ken Ham and celebrity pastor slash bad boy slash fallen star Mark Driscoll and many other prominent premillennialists, though not nearly all. This idea that things are going to get worse and then Jesus is coming back is very much a part of our discourse even today. Again, there are plenty of premillennialists who argue that the Bible gives us a mandate to care for the planet. Still, you can see how guys like MacArthur get their position. They think they don't have to take care of the water, soil, and air because it will soon be switched out for better stuff. The downside is that by doing so, we risk poisoning the very neighbors we're supposed to love. Let's go back to Robespierre and Notre Dame. Why was he able to set up a cult inside one of the most treasured churches in the world? Because Catholicism was so bonded with the corrupt French government. It exercised its power over the people instead of serving the people so that a meager 2% of the population could outweigh everyone else. When the French government fell, the rebels didn't stop with the king and the nobility. They took out the church as well, for their lack of care for others, for wielding their political power to get what they want. If we get so caught up in the future, we forget that we have a responsibility in the present to both love our Lord and love our neighbor. If we want to protect the legacy of the modern church, we have to learn the lessons of the French Revolution. To ignore the well-being of our neighbors today is not merely cruel, but also foolish. MacArthur's position overlooks the reality that our trash dumps, carbon emissions, and disappearing wildlife impacts our neighbors today. Even if you believe that all of this is going to disappear in the near future, how can you justify poisoning those around us right now? 
Can we meet the needs of energy, food, and loving our neighbors without losing our heads? Special thanks to George Marsden. He's the author of Fundamentalism and American Culture. It's the book on fundamentalism that I saw quoted in every other book on the subject that I read. You can find a full list of resources used in this episode on the website at trucepodcast.com, including links to the full sermon from John MacArthur that I excerpted for this episode from Grace to You. And special thanks to Grace to You for giving me permission to use the clip. Truce is a listener-supported show. Only about 2% of people who download this show give anything at all to help. This project, as you may have sensed, is way different from most Christian podcasts. Each episode takes days to produce, lots of books, time, and equipment. Your gift helps send a message that Christian media can be both educational and entertaining. If you want to be a part of raising the bar on Christian media, visit trucepodcast.com donate. Patrons of the show get access to a special bonus episode I recorded at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. It has to do with the Kingdom of Mysore and their contribution to the American Revolution. And also, one of the coolest items I've ever seen in a museum. Thanks, as always, to my brother Nick Starin for being a sounding board. I also had help discussing these issues with Ray McDaniel, Carl Klemmer, and Eric Nevins, who has a podcast called Halfway There. I also had vocal help from my friend Jerry Dugan, host of the Beyond the Rut podcast. God willing, I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?